out of the sky My dreams went crashing When you said goodbye Who'd think that after all I've been to you That you and I would be through Well, hello, and welcome back to the H.P. Lovecraft Book Club. So in this episode, I will be looking at Out of the Eons, which is the fourth story that uh, Lovecraft helped Hazel Heald write. In fact, with most of the, with all of these uh, Hazel Heald stories, it seems he was the main ghostwriter of the stories, not uh, just a reviser, not just an editor. We'll be getting into stories shortly that he either collaborated with or he was more of a an assistant with, or he provides some commentary and help with. Um, but Hazel Heald, like the Zelia Bishop stories, were largely ghostwritten. And uh, this is the best of them, I think. It, it might be tied in my mind with The Horror in the Museum, but unlike The Horror in the Museum, I think Out of the Eons is a, is a top-notch Lovecraft story. I mean, it's it's if this was published under his name, it would be... You know, if it, if it was his byline, this would be a top-tier Lovecraft story with some of the others written around this time, like Whisper in Darkness and The Shadow Over Innsmouth. It's it's that good, and there's so much interesting world-building going on in this story. Uh, it, it's it's uh, incredibly global in its perspective. Um, actually, we have to go back to stories like The Transmigration of... of uh, Juan Romero to get a story that's trying to maybe connect uh, the mythology across different cultures. Uh, this clearly, I mean, there's connections here. There's suggestions of Egypt, Coptic, uh, the Coptic era in Egypt with Pacific Islands, with, uh, you know, Philippines and other. And then, of course, uh, you know, in Massachusetts, where the story is set, it all kind of is connected together. And this is also a great story looking at his perspective of, of the immigrant, seedy, foreigner cultist character. There's some of the most uh, interesting depictions of, of those types of characters in this story. For that kind of thing, you have to go back to maybe the horror at Red Hook to get such a, a, a richness of seedy, suspicious characters creeping around the edges doing stuff, knowing something that the, the main protagonist maybe don't know, uh, pushing some uh, nefarious uh, motivation. So yeah, this is this is a great story, and uh, certainly not one to miss if you're a Lovecraft reader. I think a, you know, a lot of revisions maybe you could skip by. They all have their value, but this one in particular, I think, should be it should be in the anthologies of Lovecraft writing, you know, as a, as one of his top-notch stories. Um, and it's important. It really develops uh, this um, whole other mythology um, to this kind of Cthulhu mythos. In this case, it's the god Ganthanoata. Uh, I think it's how it's pronounced, something close to that. Um, but this is tied to other elder gods. In fact, there's like a war between the elder gods in primordial times hinted at. We have, uh, of course, human cultures embracing that like we saw in the mound. Well, I guess those weren't really humans. But I think this god actually shows up in in the mound as one of the, 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 the bad god that was being worshipped by the people of... of, of 
of that underground civilization. Um, so this one's also set in a museum, and it's, I don't know if he was inspired by the, the, the whore in the museum to kind of build on the same kind of storytelling device. It's a very different type of story, but they're both sort of set in a museum. In this case, uh, the narrator, though, isn't a curious spectator, uh, a kind of a, a weirdo who's a bit interested in, in kind of the grotesque. Here's just a standard museum. It's the Cabot Museum of Archaeology in Boston, Massachusetts. And our narrator, and it's not really our main character. There's not really a main character in this story. I'll, maybe our narrator is the closest we get. But it's uh, this guy, Richard H. Johnson who had left this uh, note behind. So in this sense, it's, it's kind of like uh, the man in stone or the winged death where we're kind of reading uh, a document that's been left behind by dead people. And that's how we're kind of filling in the story. Um, but it's also a nice nested narrative like uh, the call of Cthulhu is where within that uh, manuscript, which is kind of presented as an academic report on an incident and the, the events leading up to the incident, we also have like the internal texts, which dig deeper into the mythology, right? Because there's a scroll that major plays a major role in the story and other books that somehow are in the know about what's going on here with this mummy, uh, such as uh, The Unspeakable Cult by Van Yutz, the Black Book. Also, is that Van Yutz? The Necronomicon shows up here. So uh, there are other texts that our narrators are able to draw from to fully tell the story so there's a lot going on in this this tale it's it's about an it's about a 10,000 words so it's not really really short um so it but it's also really dense um it's so there's all there's a lot packed into this story so we're told at the beginning of chapter one there's five chapters in this story we're told in the beginning of chapter one really about the mummy that's come to the cabot museum and a little bit about its its official history what's known about it from the people who dug it up um but first we're told that after this thing arrived in the cabot museum um and it was i guess it arrived a long time ago because it was like in the 19th century that it first came to america from a from an archaeological dig through a shipping company. That's when it first came, even before our narrator was uh, the curator of the museum. But it was only recently, after 1932, in which uh, people started to visit the museum and strange events started to happen. Um, and basically, the strange things that start to happen is suspicious people start to show up. Uh, Lovecraft at one point even uses the term suspicious persons to refer to one of the characters who gets arrested for basically snooping around this mummy a little bit too much. Um, quote, I sh uh, certain threats and unusual events during the past weeks have led me to believe that my life, as well as the other museum officials, is in some peril through the enmity of several widespread secret cults of Asiatics, Polynesians, and heterogeneous mystical devotees. Hence, it's possible that the work of my executors may not be long postponed. And then we're told in a note by the executor that indeed he does die about a year later of relatively strange circumstances. So the hint is that he was knocked off by these cultists for you know to keep quiet or to make it easier for them to do what they want to do or, or just to shut them up it's it's kind of reminiscent of the call of cthulhu in fact i think this story and call of cthulhu really have very similar approaches to the story because we're kind of it's like a box of documents right that we kind of shifting through as a reader um and that's that's what we have here it's just a little bit more simple 
not being quite as nested, I guess, as Call of Cthulhu, but the same sort of idea. Um, oh, so by the way, this this was written um, yeah, in 1933, so it's about the time that this takes place, um, and it was published in April 1935 in Weird Tales. <clears throat> Sorry for not telling you that before. So anyways, after uh, we learn the kind of the fate of the curator, we're then told about the discovery and how the sailors in this kind of archaeological expedition, I guess it was just a freighter, a landing party and a freighter discovered the mummy. Um, but they came across this island and there's all the cyclopean masonry, all the weird stuff. It's kind of, we got to go back maybe to Dagon, of course, call it Cthulhu to tie to that. I'm, I'm certainly we're meant to maybe think about the, the Pacific as a location of, of course, that's where Relay is, that's buried under the ocean. It's in, and that's where Dagon took place. Um, anyways, but they find this mummy and it's described as this. Um, after a short period of virtual panic caused partly by certain carvings on the wall, the men were induced to move the mummy to the ship, though it was only with fear and loathing that they touched it close to the body as if one thrust in, into its clothes was a cylinder of an unknown metal containing a roll of thin bluish white membrane of equally unknown nature inscribed with peculiar characters in a grayish interminable pigment, end quote. So along with this mummy, we have this scroll in this, this canister, and that becomes a major plot device, these two things, the mummy and the, the, the scroll. And then the Cabot Museum uh, takes this in and displays it. Now, the way this mum, of course, mummies make us think of Egypt, and there is kind of an Egyptian connection actually mentioned in that there's like these kind of methods and techniques were known from like the Coptic civilization. So there's a suggestion that there's the network of primordial cults and knowledge that extend around the world, a kind of a primordial globalization of of, of these sort of cults. Um, you got the writing on the wall with the hieroglyphs. That's kind of like what you see in Egypt too. So I think Lovecraft's doing that on purpose. Uh, I don't know if there's any Pacific Island cultures that have anything quite like this. I'm sure there have been mummies discovered in the Pacific. I don't know if quite as ritualized as this, but certainly it seems to me Lovecraft is, is trying to suggest a primordial uh, kind of global uh, belief in these various deities and things that are floating around earth and intervening in various ways in, in human events. So anyways, after it arrives at the Cabot Museum, the mummy becomes sort of a local celebrity of sorts. People start to visit it. Scholars investigate it. it they try to tie it to other kind of archaeological discoveries. Of course, it seems to be a big find and it even becomes kind of a popular. I, I love this little addition to that. It's like a popular location for the local Bostonians to visit. At the same time, it's got international fame as the as a, as a relic of of significance. But the biggest mystery here is not the mummy so much as mysterious as it is, and it becomes even more mysterious by the end of the story. Is the the scroll, which linguists can't really decipher, so it's some language that cannot be read. Quote, it is true that a few scholars unusually versed in the literature of occultism and magic found vague resemblance between some of the hieroglyphs and certain primal symbols 
described or cited in two or three very ancient texts, obscure and esoteric texts such as the Book of Iban, reputed to descend from forgotten Hyperborea, the panoptic fragments alleged to be prehuman, and the monstrous and forbidden Necronomicon of the mad Arab Abdul al-Hazred. Right. Now, the real detail we get, though, about the background of this mummy comes from Von Jutz's Nameless Cults. And I think that it was an invention of Robert E. Howard, I want to say, or let me double check. Maybe that's the 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 worm, the mysterious worm or mystery mysteries of the worm. That's definitely a Robert E. Howard one. Yeah, this one was a Howard one, too. First. Uh, appears in the children of night and the black stone as the name nameless cults and then lovecraft use unos patros bliken colton um or the or sometimes it's just called the black book so that's good enough but it's the black book that's going to give us our our background tale to the to the mummy more or less but anyways that that's all what's in chapter one of the story chapter two just sort of builds on this giving a little bit more of the background of the texts that seem connected to it and, and some of the future discoveries that are made and the growing fame of the Cabot Museum as connected to this this um, body. We got new visitors coming such as uh, uh, well this, this one guy Swami Chandraputra who apparently is Randolph Carter because that's the name he takes in uh, the sequel to the Silver Key. So Randolph Carter even uh, takes a visit to to this museum that's just a little easter egg i guess a little world building there um the fact i think this was actually written before um return of the silver keys so this might be uh, that might be a, a retcon of sorts that it was randolph carter but that's a nice little addition he makes there um and then knowledge of this kind of leaks out to occult presses and this brings starts to bring more interest by these these swarthy types uh, these specific islander types, these Filipinos and others who become increasingly interested in it. Um, but then it's not until chapter three that uh, we see our narrator, the scholar, able to connect this scroll and the body to the black book and you know, the nameless cults. And that's really what chapter three focuses on. Chapter three is a bunch of basically the background story of what was going on here. So basically, that we have a, a kingdom in the Pacific Islands somewhere, in some primordial lands, um, kind of in the Hyperborean Age, um, that are engaged in some war between, it seems, uh, like the spawn of Yugoth, uh, Gantha Noatha, uh, Sathwogwa, these other gods are all engaged in some kind of conflict and fighting for these human devotees. And this is largely through Freer, uh, quote, people said that if no victims were offered, Ganthanoa would ooze up to the light of day and lumber down the basalt cliffs of Yadith Go, bringing doom to all it might encounter, for no living thing could behold Ganthanoa or even a perfect graven image of him, of it, I should say, however small without suffering a change more horrible than death itself. Sight of the god art's image, as all the legends of the Yugoth spawn agree, meant paralysis and petrification of a shocking, singular shocking sort, in which the victim was turned to stone and leather on the outside, while their brain, brain remained perpetually alive, horribly fixed and prisoned through the ages and the maddening consciousness of the passage of in maternal e e epochs 
of helpless inaction till chance and time might complete the decay of the petrified shell and leave it exposed to die. Most brains, of course, would go mad long before this eon-deferred release could arrive, end quote. So this is kind of what this god can do to you. Uh, basically drive you mad even after you're dead because your brain continues to live. A really kind of horrific idea. Um, I think this was played with in a, in a Tales from the Crypt episode where... You know, some people in a some medical students are talking about the cadavers and do they still feel or hear and and you know basically the the the, the episode ends with the revelation that not only can they continue to see they can continue to feel pain <laughs> after that which is it allows for a really kind of gruesome climax of that of that tale it's kind of like that it's this idea that if you see this god you will be petrified essentially turned into a mummy but kept alive which uh for maybe you know tens of thousands of years this is all set let's seems 200,000 years ago and this mummy's been around that entire time so what happens is uh so basically humans are being persecuted by this Ugothian god right um and there's a priest though tyog t-y-o-g um, and here's what Lovecraft writes about his ambition. Inspired by the mother goddess. Um, so this is, I think, this is like Shub Niggereth, Nug, Yeb. Uh, Yig might be involved in this too. These are gods that are opposed to the, the gods of Yugoth. Um, inspired by the mother goddess, Tyog wrote down a strange formula in, his, in the heretic nakal of his order which he believed would keep the possessor immune from the dark god's petrifying power with this protection he reflected it might be possible for a bold man to climb the dreaded basalt cliffs and first of all human beings enter the cyclopean fortress beneath which gantanoa reportedly brooded face to face with the god and with the power of shub nigareth and her sons at her side tygoth believed that he might be able to bring all Bring it to terms and at last deliver mankind from its brooding menace end quote so he's like a heroic figure he's trying to liberate them but he, to do this he has to kind of cut a deal with with shub niggereth that's i don't know in the end of the day if that's better but he thought it was um but there was some of some of his enemies human enemies that's he's using this scroll that apparently can protect him but the scroll gets swapped out and he's unprotected and he gets uh he gets petrified. So this is the the origin of the mummy and the scroll, apparently, according to the Black Book. And in the years after, belief in this event and in this tradition carries on. It carries on for hundreds of thousands of years, apparently. Um, generation after generation through these oral traditions, these vernacular traditions of the Pacific. Um, quote, though it flourished chiefly in those Pacific regions around which Mu itself once stretched, there were rumors of the hidden and detested cult of Gantanoa in the ill-fated Atlantis and on the abhorred plateaus of Leng. Yuan Yutz implied the presence in the fabled subterranean kingdom of Cayenne. It gave clear evidence that it had penetrated Egypt, Chaldea, Persia, China, the forgotten Semitic empires of Africa, and Mexico and Peru in the New World. That it had a strong connection with the witchcraft movement in Europe against which the bulls of popes were vainly directed, he more than strongly hinted, end quote. So this is apparently Van Eust's argument that it became a global cult, but there's evidence of this in many of Lovecraft's stories if you kind of want to kind of sort of retcon them all to, to fit this emerging world, this emerging world building that Lovecraft is engaged in. Um, you have Under the Pyramids, which might, there might be a connection there 
uh, although it's not explicit in that story, you certainly have that trans uh, transformation of Juan Romero, which talks about a connection of a set of beliefs from the New World to India. Um, certainly, Kanyen uh, uh, in the mound, that's true, that's clearly established in that text that uh, this god was being worshipped as sort of a devil in that uh world atlantis i don't know we got the temp the temple which is an atlantis story so you know can you kind of imagine this uh being just another like the cthulhu cult being another cult that kind of emerged around it even in of course influencing the witchcraft cults which is a great little addition there um and von eustet says even seems to have been a participant or active in the cult Quote, Von Eust gave subtle and disquieting hints of actual contact with the cult so that, as I read, I shuddered at what was rumored about his death. He spoke of the growth of certain ideas regarding the appearance of the devil god, a creature which no human being had ever seen. End quote. So this is all really, really great stuff. Uh, chapter three of this story. It's really the cent centerpiece, and it's our best window, at least through Lovecraft, of what's the contents of, of, of the black book. Um, and it's wonderful stuff. So lots of lots of fun too. Um, so, anyways, chapter four and five then get to the, like the climax of the story, um, which basically involves increasing numbers of of suspicious foreigners arriving at this to visit this mummy and engage in various rituals. Um, actually, speaking words over this mummy, um, calling it by name. Some call using the word Tayag, actually calling him by name, uh, and we have people from kind of all over, although they tend to be of, of the Pacific or of Asia. We have a Singalese like from Sri Lanka. We have a Filipino mentioned, uh, Polynesians of various sorts, a Hawaiian, uh, and all suspicious people, people with like a criminal record. That's just one thing they seem to have in common. Uh, not able to wear European clothing very well. They have the, the poor disguises. It's wonderful stuff. It, 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 there is the, it, it is that same kind of racial anti-immigrant sentiment you see in a lot of lovecraft stories um but it's done so kind of wonderfully here i i kind of can forgive some of this it's not it's not in a it's not uh it's not coming from a really despicable place i don't feel in this story at least it's in the like in the horror that red hook you really see him really digging into you know this idea that this neighborhood of new york is being overrun by immigrants here it's just he just really wants these really wacky villains showing up, you know, in their in their odd clothes and maybe their fake fake mustaches or whatever, and then start doing weird rituals over some long dead mummy. It, it's 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 almost kind of humorous uh, in the way it's portrayed, and I and I think it's not coming from a, a really a place of loathing towards these people, um, you know. He, but they are kind of suspicious uh, sorts. They're described as basically to a T suspicious sorts. Um, uh, now, as this is happening, the mummy begins to disintegrate and change in various ways. At one point, it's, it seems as even eyes opening. So this leads the curator to basically lock up the mummy into a, you know, or not allow people to see it for more than a few minutes and, and begin to protect it. Like you would with any relic that's uh, being damaged by too much exposure to the public. So the climax of the story happens on December 4th. First, I guess this is 1932. Quote, it was during the early morning hours of Thursday, December 1st, that a terrible climax developed. 
At about one o'clock, horrible screams of mortal fright and agony were heard issuing from the museum, and the screams of frantic telephone calls from neighbors brought to the scene quickly and simultaneously a squad of police and several museum officials, including myself. Some of the policemen surrounded the building, whilst others with the officials cautiously, cautiously entered. In the main corridor, we found the, death, the night watchman strangled to death. A bit of East Indian hemp still knotted around his neck and realized that despite all precautions, some darkly evil intruder or intruders had gained access to the place. Now, nothing. Now, however, a tomb-like silence enfolded everything. And we almost feared to advance upstairs to the fateful wing where we knew the core of the trouble must lurk. We felt a bit more steadied after flooding the building with light from the central switches in the corridor and finally crept reluctantly up the curving st staircase and through the lofty archway to the Hall of Mummies. End quote. And that's how chapter four ends. And then chapter five, really in classic Lovecraft, Lovecraft style, we get a cover up. We get from this point on, he says, this is all secret. Don't open this until my death. You know, this is the stuff that has to be kept from the public. The truth of what actually happened here. Now, what they find when they go up there is people have tried to steal the mummy and the scroll. Right. And they were killed by this. And the mummy has moved. So those are that's like the evidence. So apparently what happened, pretty clearly what happened is the mummy moved after they were trying to kidnap it or steal it along with the scroll. It awakened and they were mummified. So somehow this power of, of this god has somehow got itself through um, Tyog's body and afflicted them they they were uh for instance we get here to be brief the hapless invader who less than an hour before had been a sturdy living melanesian bent on unknown evils was now a rigid ash gray figure of stony leathery petrification in every respect identify uh, identical with the crouching eon old blasphemy of the violated glass case so he, that's what happened to the people who tried to kidnap the mummy and the mummy has moved uh significantly now it seems what happened because the curator looks into the eyes of the mummy and sees this image of of Gantanoa uh, which was somehow preserved in his eye after being after Tyog was killed um, by him or mummified not really killed mummified and preserved in this state with this living brain um, some of that image was was but it was strong enough that image was strong enough to kill these two intruders but not the curator who was just kind of but he was able to see something right he sees he sees the last moments of Tyog there was a vast room a chamber of cyclopean masonry and I seemed to be viewing it from 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 one of its corners on the wall were carving so hideously that even in the imperfect image their stark blasphemous and bestial bestiality sickened one sickened me I could not believe that the carvers of these things were human or that they'd ever seen human beings when they shaped the frightful outlines with leered at the beholder. End quote. So he basically sees this whole final moments of Tyog through his eyes, which is kind of a cool little bit. Um, I guess it's the belief that your last moments are preserved in your eyes when you die and can be visited there. But he eventually sees the creature. Uh, I might call it gigantic tentacled, Probuskian, octopus-eyed, semi-amorphous, plastic, partly s um, squamous and partly rugose. Uh, so you can't really describe it. We're kind of 
he's kind of pulling the old trick of the undescribable monster, although we get a few adjectives here. But we can kind of imagine this is a really subtle and momentane, you know, instantaneous image that he gets. Um, so after this, there's the effort to cover this up. And basically the, the final, I guess, revelation is something I guess we already would have predicted is that when they dissect the mummy finally they find and they open up its brain case they find that the brain is alive and, and pulsing right again suggesting that it's it's been alive this whole time the people who see it are sworn to secrecy or whatever but I guess this gets revealed when this document gets revealed then sometime later so that's the story so so many wonderful things in here actually i think this is really one of his uh, one of his best tales uh and you know again if it would have been written under his byline i i think it would be as as well appreciated and and read by lovecraft fans as, as stories like call of cthulhu it, it feels a lot like that um and yeah it's it's worldly it's got that kind of global narrative I think this story more than almost any other, maybe except for Call of Cthulhu, really tries to paint a picture of a world, a primordial world in the grip of, of these ancient deities, right? And another light, like the character of Tyog, he's such a heroic figure in a way. He's, he's a hero trying to stand up to these gods and failing to do it because of treachery. You know, that itself, even if that's just the story, that's a good story. It doesn't even need the whole nested narrative to be a great story. But the nested part's wonderful, too, with the museum and the poor curator trying to figure out why all these weirdos are sniffing around his, his mummies. Beautiful, wonderful stuff. So, um, so yeah, that's, that's my thoughts on uh, Into the, into the, Out of the Eons. Sorry, not Into, Out of the Eons. The name doesn't really suggest much of the story, except that we're kind of going to uh, these primordial, uh, this primordial universe. So, uh, anyways, that's it for now. Uh, next story, we'll look at the final of the Hazel Healed uh, ghostwriting revisions. It's the Horror in the Burial Ground, which is a probably the least serious of these five stories. It's also, I think, the shortest. Um, maybe the Man of Stone is a little bit shorter. But uh, no, I, I think this one's actually the shortest of all of these. Um, and it's, it's, it's a little more pulpy, but, uh, but still worthy of, a, of an entire episode, I think. So that's what I'll do next. So if you're reading along, re read The Horror in the Burying Ground, and I'll give you my thoughts on it when I join you next time. Um, and then looking ahead, we have the Dwayne Rimmel revisions there's i think four of them but i'm going to just do it over two episodes because a couple of them are super short um and we'll be we're moving to, we're getting to the end here um uh, a handful of episodes more and we'll be we'll be through the revisions entirely so um i'm excited for that but we got a lot of stories to to work our way through including some i've never read before so it's all pretty exciting for me if i find another story like out of the eons i'll be super happy because i think this one definitely needs to to be there with all the other greats so anyways uh that's it for now let me know what you think by sending me an email at 100 pagescast at gmail.com we'll see you next time thanks gee it breaks my heart to see you day after day turning away 
as much as to say you've 